Uh, Open your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Ephesians, please. Book of Ephesians. Chapter 3 is where we find ourselves this day. As you know, we've been working our way through this great epistle of Paul's to the Ephesians, and we find ourselves in chapter 3. Up to this point, the apostle has been laying out for his readers some of the glorious truths that are shared by all who are in Christ. As it said back in chapter 1, verse 3, about these things, it says that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. All of these spiritual blessings, these spiritual jewels, if you will, such as election and predestination to adoption, redemption, forgiveness, sealed by the Spirit. Those are all shared equally by every person in Christ. Also, according to chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, all in Christ are included in the hope of His calling, in the riches of His inheritance, there in one eighteen and verse 19, and we are those whom the power of God is fully available to today, to uh, we have access to the power that raised Christ from the dead. Throughout chapter one, we noticed that the dominant personal pronoun, if you will, who to whom is he speaking, is we, us, and our. So it's shared. That continues into chapter 2, for instance, in verse 3. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh. In verse 4 you notice again, But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us. Verse 5, And when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. Verse 6, He continues, Raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ. And so it goes. So up to verse 11, us and we and our has been the, 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 the primary pronoun to whom He's addressing. So these are shared blessings. These are spiritual blessings that every single person, the moment they are in Christ Jesus, it's true of them. And nobody's greater elected than another and nobody's more predestined than another. We are equal at the foot of cross, which is incredible. The spiritual blessings are ours equally. And so as you think through that, he's been laying the foundation for the spiritual unity of his church. The spiritual unity of his church is really the, the, the bottom line of Ephesians. Everything rests on that, that unity that Christ has accomplished. When you come to 2.11, he kind of draws our attention and our focus to the Jewish uh, Gentile thing, the, 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 the old covenant perspective of the Jews and the Gentiles. And as we saw before, there was a great division between the Jews and the Gentiles in the old covenant. The law of God was a barrier that God placed between Jews and Gentiles. And for, apart from becoming Jewish, by becoming a proselyte, if you will, there was no hope for the Gentiles whatsoever without God in the world with no hope apart from becoming a proselyte and becoming Jewish. and But still, you were a second-class citizen, so to speak, in the Old Covenant. But God did something, as we've already looked in chapter 2, to remedy the hostilities between the two Jews and Gentiles, between God and people. He did something by sending His Son, Jesus Christ, where it says in verse 13 of chapter 2, You who are formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 14, He is our 
peace. There's that hour again. He's both. He is the one source, the one avenue of peace between one another. And peace with God is through Jesus Christ. Through His death, He reconciles us. And in Christ, the two people, the Jews and Gentiles, are now one new man in Christ Jesus And Gentiles are included in the promises to the Jews and the blessings without becoming Jewish. Okay, That's a big deal. You come to chapter 2, verse 18. Paul returns to we there in verse 18. If you notice, for through him, that is Christ, we both, both Jews and Gentiles, have our access in one spirit to the Father. Gentile inclusion was a radical idea at the time. For the religious Jews, they rejected this doctrine that included the Gentiles as a heresy just as they rejected Jesus as Messiah or justification by faith alone. They rejected it wholesale. And so the first two chapters then lay the foundation of what we've said already, the spiritual unity in Christ's church. All these spiritual blessings are shared in equally by both Jews and Gentiles who are in Christ Jesus. In other places, um, Galatians 3.28, for instance, I remind you of this, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Not that we don't lose the distinctiveness of male and female, but there is equality in Christ Jesus at the foot of the cross. In the kingdom of God, there is the equality of uh, shared blessings. It doesn't matter um, what your ethnicity or gender. Colossians 3.11 says it like this, A renewal, which is talking about the new man in Christ, in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. So all that say, up to the the end of chapter 2 in Ephesians, this has been the emphasis of the Apostle. And the Holy Spirit is the one who moves the Apostle to write this. So this is the, the heart of the Holy Spirit to instruct the church of the spiritual unity of the church. Okay? There's to be no factions and no, no divisions in Christ's church. That is sinful, extremely sinful. And as you begin to see the foundation of unity, you begin to see why that is so sinful. So we want to work really hard, and that's what chapter 4 is going to instruct us and exhort us in to preserve the unity and the bond of peace. But up to this point, the end of chapter 2, this is where we've been. We come to chapter 3. Paul is so moved by this, this, that he's been writing about this spiritual unity between the Jews and the Gentiles. He wants to launch into a prayer, but he interrupts himself and digresses some to explain his ministry. And he doesn't pick up his prayer until chapter 3, verse 14. So verses 1 through 12, 1 through 13, is this digression. His gospel of grace, a grace for the whole world equally, is so radical and a challenge to the Judaizers, he lays out here how he came about to this message. How did he come to preach this? He will lay that out. We've already looked at it. And why he goes about preaching this. Because it causes him a lot of trouble. In fact, that's why he's in prison for the doctrine of Gentile inclusion. Right? So he lays out here why we should believe him. Not only the first century, but us today. Why we should look to what Paul writes as inspired scripture and we should live by what he says because these are not his words. It was made known to him by divine revelation. Okay? So as he does this here, as he lays out 
these, uh, his ministry in verses 1 through 13, we begin to see elements of an authentic ministry and thus the title of our last three messages. Here are elements of an authentic Christian ministry. And, and just to say in a word, not to repeat anything we preach too much, but the, the importance of authenticity. How important is that to you? Do you even care? Right? If you care about heaven and hell, you'll care about authenticity because there's only one way to heaven. Right? And there's only one ministry that is authentic. All others are phony. Right? It doesn't matter where we are and who we are. The authenticity comes from the Holy Spirit. Okay? And we're going to see the elements of, a, of an authentic Christian ministry. Why we want to see that is we want to make sure that we're following the New Testament because here's an authentic apostle moved by the Holy Spirit, and here's authentic ministry. If we want to be authentic, we're, we're going to be echoing what we read. That's why we want to be governed by the Scripture, particularly the New Testament. Okay? Um, so, there's so much phony stuff out there in the name of Christ. Authenticity is uh, becoming more rare, isn't it? It's in, in, in all avenues of life, certainly um, no different in the religious world, in the church world, if you will. So then, when you come then to chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, we broke this section down into three parts based on how Paul uses phrases to identify ministry, his ministry. The first one we said an authentic ministry sees themselves, as Paul does in verse 1, as the prisoner. He literally is a prisoner of Jesus Christ, but what's the heart behind this prison um, imprisonment is his humble submission to the will of God. So we used uh, the prisoner of Christ to frame up an authentic ministry. The second element we saw is in verse 2, the word used, Paul, there is stewardship of God's grace. And this was last time we were together. Um, we looked at stewardship of God's mystery. Stewardship is a guardianship, a protector. There's a duty to, to do that which the, the, man, the owner wants you to do with this. In other words, what does God want you to do with this gospel. This is God's message. It's not up to Paul to change it, manipulate it, minimize it, or make it more than what it is. It's delivered to him. He's just a waiter. He's just a waiter to deliver that which Christ gave him to deliver. The message is God's authentic ministry is a stewardship. Okay? It's a duty to, to be faithful. And the third one, which is our text in our section today, is in verse 7. To the end of our section, verse 13, you notice there in verse 7, it says, Of which I was made a minister. An authentic Christian ministry has these marks. And the third one that we're going to look at today is this idea, this, this, this phrase, this term, it minister. Okay? It can, be mis it can be misunderstood because in today's church, a minister is the pastor. That's not what this is saying. Okay? That's not what New Testament means by that. An authentic Christian ministry sees themselves, is itself a minister of the gospel, okay? Is a minister of the gospel. Now, we're going to see in verse 7 how, how he came to be a minister. We're going to see in verses 8 and 9 what this ministry entails. And then finally in 10 through 13, we're going to see why God gave him this ministry. So let's read from verse 7 to 13 and then we'll, we'll break it down as we go. Verse 7 says it like this, Of which I, and that's referring back to the gospel at the end of verse 6, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of His power. 
to me, the very least of all saints. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which He carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in Him. Verse 13, Therefore I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. Amazing stuff. Back then to verse 7. The third element that we're going to look at here of an authentic Christian ministry is that it sees itself, himself, as a minister there in verse 7. How did he come about to be a minister? Well, first of all, he did not choose this. In, in other words, it wasn't his initiation. He chose to obey, but he did not initiate, initiate this. It says there in verse 7, I was made a minister. It's, he was acted upon and made a minister. This acting upon him, obviously, is God has made Paul a minister. And the word minister is from the word diakonos, where we get the word deacon from. And deacon literally means a waiter on tables. That's literally what it means. It speaks of a servant. It speaks of one who serves. It speaks of one who provides a service. One who is active in service. In 4.12 of Ephesians, it says there that pastors and teachers were given for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. That's the same word, diakonos. That's the same term that's used in translated minister back in 3.7. It's this idea of a servant, just a lowly servant. The minister, he's not talking about being a pastor. This is not an office. This is a function. Okay? An authentic Christian ministry is one that sees itself as a lowly servant, a waiter on tables. And if you look at verse 7, how did he come about to be this minister? The first part there in verse 7, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me. According to the grace. Grace is undeserved favor, we simple definition. It's getting something good which is not earned, right? It, so by nature, grace is given. It's getting something I don't deserve, something good. Okay, But look at how Paul piles on these terms here. Paul's really emphasizing the amazing grace of God with these terms. The gift of God's grace given to me. I mean, that's just piling it on. Because grace by nature is given. And he says it's the gift of God's grace given to me. He's just piling it on to really emphasize that the way he... How it came about for him to be a lowly servant was the gift of God's unmerited favor. Okay? Um, secondly, in verse 7, notice there that it goes on to say, according to the working of his power. This is just, just wonderful here. Power and grace together. He's, he's emphasizing how it was that he was made. How, did, how was it that he became a servant? It's not just grace, and he emphasizes now the, the, the dynamic dunamis of God, the power of God. So this is omnipotent grace. Omnipotent grace made Paul a servant, which is quite fascinating. It, it took 
omnipotent grace to make him a servant. Because think about Paul. Before he was Paul, he was Saul of Tarsus. And if you read in Philippians 3 and other places where he talks about himself, he was a self-righteous Jew that was harsh. Was he, uh, he put to death Christians. He was, he, was a, he was proud. He hated Christ. He thought Christ was anti-God. His God, I mean, right? And look at, he's emphasizing here that it took omnipotent grace to transform him from this self-righteous hunter of Christians into one who sees himself as a lowly servant of the one he used to hunt. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Right? And so omnipotent grace comes and rescues him, yeah? Plucks him from the burning and sets him over here. And says, you are now my servant. And so the power of God changes this man's mindset, his heart, changes his own disposition. His his whole trajectory of life is transformed by omnipotent grace. And he is a servant. He is a waiter, a lowly waiter of God because of the grace given and the working of his power. Power is mentioned, obviously, throughout Ephesians. Okay, if you were 19, notice again, I just want to show this, because this is, a, this is an emphasis of Paul's in this letter. Not only grace, we know this to be the, the letter of grace, saved by grace through faith. And grace is just saturates this letter, but so does power. And um, lowly Christians, you need to stop living lowly and start calling on the power that raised up Jesus Christ. This is what Paul's saying to Christians. He's preaching to Christians. And he says, Christians, I want you to know in verse 19, what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe? And this is in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, verse 20, which he brought about in Christ. You see, resurrection power is available to every saint. Chapter 3, please, look at verse 16. That he would grant... You, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man. Verse 20, chapter 3. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to, in harmony with, the power that works within us. This is the power of God. And and you go to chapter 6, verse 10. He uses a little different language, but look at the same sentiment in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. And then it goes into putting on the armor, right? So all this to say, when we go back to chapter 3, Paul is emphasizing that this power that he's reminded us through the book of Ephesians, he says here that in verse 3, verse 7, that this same power is what transformed him into a servant of Christ. The power that created the universe and sustains the universe, the power that raised Christ and seated Him at His right hand, is directed, governed by grace. Grace determines how that power is used. And Paul says, that power transformed me. Remember Acts 9. In the life of Paul, it saved him and transformed him from a spiritual dead sinner who persecuted Christians into a servant of Christ. 
Um, obviously, he's speaking of his conversion. Can I take you back, please, to Galatians chapter 1? Paul's going to emphasize this, and he speaks of his conversion because he's been overwhelmed by grace. He's just been overwhelmed by grace. I hope you and I are overwhelmed by grace. I hope you tell of any chance, every chance you get how it is that Christ came to save you and how that all transpired. Paul never, that never was very far back on his tongue. It was always toward the tip. Right? It was always toward the tip. He couldn't wait to spit it out. Here in Galatians, look at this. Verse 11, anyway. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which I preached by me is not according to man, for neither I received it from man nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. That's Ephesians 3 as well. Verse 13. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute, hunt, the church of God beyond measure. I mean, he went extra and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism in 14, beyond my many contemporaries, among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. This guy, if he had a chance, would have flew an airplane into a tower. Oh, right? He would have flew an airplane into a tower. Okay? You talk about intensity and what he believed. Verse 15, but, don't you love the buts? <laughs> right? But when God, who had set me apart from my mother's womb, and called me through what? His grace was pleased to do something in verse 16 to reveal His Son in me so that I might preach Him amongst the Gentiles. Right? Isn't that glorious? Look at verse 21 of that same chapter, please. Skipping for time. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia after he was saved. I was still unknown in verse 22 by sight to the churches of Judea which were in Christ but only they kept hearing, He who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith, which he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. Right? Glorious. Glorious. First Timothy, please. Notice over here. First Timothy, to the right. Chapter 1. He says it like this. Actually, it's 2 Timothy. Uh, no, no, 1 Timothy. Look at this, verse 12, please. I thank Christ, Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, because stewards are to be faithful, putting me into service. Oh, there we go. Same kind of language. Even though I was formerly... So when he put me into service, I was like verse 13, a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent aggressor. That's not the guy I'm choosing for my team. <laughs> right? Yet I was shown mercy, which is related to grace, because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Verse 14, And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which is found in Christ Jesus. 15, It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. 16 says, Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me the purpose as the foremost, the greatest sinner, as he puts it, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. He's saying, I am the poster child of mercy. I am the poster child of grace. And so this is always on Paul's mind. Back to Ephesians, please. 
And so when he's talking about authentic ministry, an authentic ministry sees itself as one's indebted to grace, transformed and, and acted upon by grace, and put into service by grace. By grace. In chapter 3, look at verse 8, please, moving on here. He goes to me. This, look how overwhelmed he is. Verse 8 says of Ephesians 3, 8, To me, the very least of all, saints or holy ones this grace was given he sees himself genuinely he's not pretentious he's not playing anything he's not coy here he's saying this power and this grace and put into service is given to me the very least of saints and the, the way the Greek puts this together, it's, an, it's a superlative. It, it, it's, 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 it, it talks about, or sur, it's, it talks about the least of them, and I go beyond them. I, I, I am even lower than the lowest. Is, is the emphasis of the word here? Paul sees himself. You can pick any of the lowliest of saints. Pick me, and Paul says, "I am worse than him. I am lower than him." And yet God showed me grace and put me into service. I didn't deserve it. He's overwhelmed by grace. I hope we're overwhelmed by grace. Don't forget the grace. Don't become too comfortable with grace and too familiar with grace. Be stunned by grace. Be stunned by grace. I had a dear friend, pastor in Bozeman, Montana, who said everything outside the lake of fire is the grace of God. That's good stuff. You know what? That's true. Everything outside the lake of fire is the grace of God. And Paul knew that, and Paul believed that, and Paul saw that. And he was just taken up with Christ and His grace and His mercy, and he says, this is what made me a minister. It's what made me a servant, a deacon, a lowly waiter on tables. Paul said the same kind of stuff. He kind of grew in his understanding of his lowliness. Here's the, the, the bottom line of Paul. In 1 Corinthians 15, 9, he says it like this, For I am the least of the apostles. Here in Ephesians, he says, I'm the very least and beyond of the saints. But in Ephesians, Corinthians 15, 9, he says, I'm the very least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. He says in 2 Corinthians 12, 11, right, when he says, I am not inferior to the greatest of apostles, even though I am, he says, nobody. I am a nobody, says the apostle Paul. An authentic ministry is one of genuine humility that views itself as a lowly servant of Christ. Omnipotent grace took a proud, self-righteous persecutor of Christians and humbled him and made him his servant. What does this service entail in chapter 3, verses nine, the second half of verse 8? There's two parts here, two-pronged. Two what does this entail, this service? An authentic ministry is one that preaches... To the Gentiles, as Paul's emphasis, but preaches the unfathomable riches of Christ. Man. There is no greater call. There is no greater privilege than to preach Christ. There's no greater treasure than Him. And there's no greater, there's no greater person to proclaim. And what can then be a greater privilege than to proclaim His glories? Paul, Paul is stunned by grace that put him in this position to serve. And what did that service entail? To preach Christ. To preach Christ. 
See the centrality of Jesus Christ in a true Christian ministry. The centrality. All you have to do is at 10 o'clock go to any place around here and see what is directly opposite of what we're reading. Every place Mike and I went to earlier around in this place is not centered on Jesus Christ. Therefore, it's not authentic. It can mention Jesus all at once, and you know if it's authentic because is He center? Is He the centerpiece? Paul, would you say, was consumed with Christ, and he preached Him, and there's no greater call. And the word here for preach here is interesting. It's the word to evangelize. It's not to herald or proclaim, which I thought it would have been, but it means to evangelize. So here, the gospel is, 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 to, is made known to the lost, and that gospel is the glories of Christ. If this is God's doing, this, this calling of this man, think of this for a minute. If this is God's doing, God's grace called this man, commissioned him, and put him into service... And if that service entails preaching Christ, can we then say that the mission of God, seen through the apostle, is to go out to the far ends of the world so that his son would be made known? Now, that's nothing new to us. But is that what we're caught up in doing? This is authentic. The authentic ministry of God is one that has the same mission as God. And what is the mission of God? To proclaim His Son. To proclaim His Son. We preach Christ and we call sinners and saints to place their trust and to continue to place their trust in Jesus Christ, don't we? Is the gospel just for pagans? No, the gospel is for me every day. The gospel's for you every day to fix your focus. The gospel that justifies is the gospel that sanctifies. It's the gospel that glorifies, you see? And it's to look to Christ, to look to Christ. So this is the authentic Christian ministry. We're not about politics. We're not about making a better you, five steps to a better this or better that. No, it's look to Christ be taken up with Christ, be enamored and adore Him and follow Him, and those who follow Him become more like Him. And if you become more like Him, you'll be a better whatever you are. <laughs> right? There's your, there's your five steps to a better you. Right? 40 days of purpose. What happens on day 41? Right? How about, how about a life of purpose? How about eternal purpose? Following Christ. And so authenticity is to preach Christ. Yeah, it is the grace of God in Paul, okay, or let's think of this, it's the grace of God to Paul, rescued him and called him into service, it's the grace of God in his life, and it's the grace of God through him to the Gentiles. God's mercy and love for the lost world is revealed through his preachers. If there's only one way to be saved, and it's through Jesus Christ, and this man was commissioned to go take Christ, can we not say that it's the heart of God to go into the world to save them? An authentic Christian ministry is Christ-centered, gospel-centered, and this is God's grace to the lost. Those spiritually dead and spiritually blind in darkness, how will they know any different? How will they come to know any different? This is the heart of God. I just, I, I just, I think because we don't see this a lot, it's a burden to me personally. I, I want to be authentic. 
And I want to be taken up with, with what God says is authentic, and that is to go preach Christ everywhere you go. Look at, go to Romans 10, please. <clears throat> Romans 10. And I know I'm preaching to the choir, but as someone once said, the choir needs preaching too as well. <laughs> uh, Romans 10. Just look, this is obviously the Apostle Paul, so it's going to be similar, and, and I just want to show you what he says here in 10, verse 11. Chapter 10, verse 11 and following. For the Scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed or put to shame. Then he goes on to explain what he means. Well, verse 12, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how then will they call on whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And, and how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent, just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things? Verse 16, However, they did not heed the good news, for Isaiah says, The Lord, who has believed our report? Finally, verse 17, Faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word, the NES has, of Christ. The word concerning Christ. To go and preach the unfathomable riches of Christ. To go and preach Christ. Second Corinthians, please, as you work our way to the right. Second Corinthians 4. Second Corinthians 4 and verse 3 and following. Paul says here to the Corinthians... Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that the result of that satanic blindness is they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. They cannot see it. What do we do then? Change the message. Try to manipulate it. Minimize it. What would you believe in? <laughs> right? Look at what we're supposed to do in verse 5. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. That's our message to satanically blinded people. We preach Christ as Lord and ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. That's our part. God's part's verse 6. For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Is that not glorious? You see, an authentic ministry is one that is centered on and saturated with Jesus Christ, is committed to proclaim Him because He is the only message and the only one who will save. And that's why we are here. Okay? We, authenticity takes on the heart of God and the heart of God is to go into the world and preach Christ Jesus so that pagans turn from their wicked ways and their false gods to follow the Son. That's why He sent the Son. That's why He sent Him. And we're to go and proclaim Romans 1.16, right? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. How come? Because it is the 
power of God unto salvation for the Jew first and to the Gentile. It's the power of God. Do we believe that? Do we believe that? I know whether I believe that or not by whether I do that. (laughs) Right? Whether I really tell people that. See, authenticity, if we're we're echoing His words and, and we're mirroring His heart, we will be busy proclaiming and heralding His Son. Listen to 1 Corinthians 1.18. Paul said, this is, I'm just showing the different places Paul speaks very similar. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says it like this, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. The message of the cross, as simple as that is, can you believe that, sister? Right? In you, as a result of that message, the power of God, and when you proclaim that simple message of Christ and Him crucified, it's like you have, uh, the, you have contained in that message the power of God. That's amazing. That's amazing. The result in 1 Corinthians one twenty three of all of this, Paul says, we preach Christ and Him crucified. We preach Christ and Him crucified. Go back to Ephesians, please. Now, grace was given to preach this. It's fascinating. It takes grace to do that. Without the grace of God, you ain't going to be concerned about doing this. But notice what Paul was busy about in verse 8 there. Again, I want to pick it up. He says, To preach to the Gentiles this, the unfathomable riches of Christ. The unfathomable riches of Christ. The the Greek term for unfathomable literally means cannot be traced or tracked. What a fascinating word. It cannot be traced or tracked. It's like trying to follow the steps of Jesus when he was walking on the water. Right? I doubt he left any marks. It's untraceable, right? It cannot be searched out. It cannot be found. You can't you can't explore it. English words used to translate this Greek term, unfathomable, like this says here. You know how they used to measure the depths of the water with fathoms? To be unfathomable is not able to find the depths of it. Okay, unfathomable. How about inscrutable? There's other translations English words use. Inscrutable, which means it cannot be completely understood because it cannot be fully observed or examined to be judged. You can't get it all. Incomprehensible, obviously. It cannot be fully comprehended. And notice, what is it that can't be fully comprehended in in verse 8 is the riches of Christ. Riches is another word that Paul uses throughout Ephesians and other places, but Ephesians uses it a lot. He uses it in 1.7 to speak of the riches of His grace. He uses it in 2.4 to speak of God being rich in mercy. He speaks of it in 2.7 and says the surpassing riches of His grace. In 3.16, He says the riches of His glory. And the word riches means to be full, full of goodness. Full, full of good, okay, full of good things. It's like you're having a, 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 a basket that's plumb to the top. It's full. That's riches, wealth. Everything about Christ is, is full, the riches of His mercy and grace. And think about it. 
to preach the unsearchable, unfathomable, inscrutable, incomprehensible wealth of Jesus Christ. This is what Paul's commissioned to do. Authentic ministry is taken up with the glory of Jesus Christ and making it known, making him known. It's preaching Christ, not preaching about him. It's preaching of him. It's preaching him because you're calling people to look to him. How else is anybody going to abandon all of life and all that they think is important? You have to put something greater in their midst. And that, that which is greater is Christ his glory. So, and where do we find His riches? Where do we find the glory of His person? In the New Testament, in the Bible. He is God incarnate. He's eternal. All those things we know about Christ and we take for granted because we think about it and we've been exposed to it for so much and sometimes we take it for granted. But let ask the Spirit of God to refresh us and give us a fresh new sight, fresh new observation of the glories of the Son. Yes, I know his deity. How many times I've read John 1 1? I know that text. But I want to be taken up with that text. Man, he's with God and was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. Oh, we just say, Yeah, I know that, Pastor. Tell me something I don't know. Get out of here. It's unfathomable. You haven't you have not found its depth. You have not found its width. Have you got your arms around Christ? Yeah, I got them all figured out. Here he is. <laughs> no, I guarantee you haven't. It's a blasphemous thought. <laughs> right? But he's called to preach to evangelize the Gentiles with this, this unsearchable wealth and riches and glory of Jesus Christ. What greater thing could we do? What greater thing could a person commit his life to doing? Think about this. What greater words could you say than that which is the unfathomable riches of Christ? Can anything greater come out of your mouth? No. Man. And we, by grace, we are called to do that. And we, by grace, we can read his text and see that and know that. Be stunned ourselves and speak to others, you see. Man, what a great subject. <laughs> I'm sorry to camp on this so long, but I'm really not that sorry. Um, Paul then, think of this. If it's untraceable and it cannot be tracked, Paul is called to preach that which otherwise can't be found out. <laughs> He's called to proclaim that which can't otherwise be found out. It's only known by divine revelation. God made it known through the Holy Spirit to Paul, according to 1 Corinthians 2.10 and 2.13. The grace given to Paul was to reveal to Paul the glories of Christ, and then he was to preach it. And he wrote it. How do we know the glories of Christ? By reading that which Paul wrote. You see, this is how you know what he knows. This is the glories of Christ that cannot be fathomed. So let us preach the New Testament. Let us preach His words. Let us study and dissect and ingest and, 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 and bow and submit and proclaim it. And then we die and go to glory. Praise God. Praise God. That's why we're here. To, to spread His wealth. The second thing, I've got to move on, verse 9. And to bring to light in verse 9, to bring to light 
what is the administration of the mystery. Stopping there. The administration is the same word found back earlier in the chapter, verse 2. Stewardship. It's the same word. So here to bring to light what is the stewardship of the mystery, the administration of it. In other words, it's to show how this mystery of Gentile inclusion, equally in the body of Christ, was to be managed. How was it going to be conducted? What are you going to do with it? Right? Through the preaching and missionary work of going to the Gentiles, to the far ends of the globe, that's what the management of the mystery is. And when you read in Colossians, man, that's just perfect parallel, right? And you know why you got that, because you know your Bible, man. It's awesome. Can we go to Colossians 1 and just see what Max again read this morning? That is Paul writing from the same prison, same imprisonment. He says it a little different and, and just for different purposes. But in Colossians chapter 1, look at verse 25. And he says here of this church... I was made a minister. You know, it's the same kind of language. He says, I was made a minister in Ephesians 3. Here in Colossians 1.25, he says, I was made a minister, a deacon, a servant, according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that, that I might fully carry out, this is, this is the administration of that, that he might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. Verse 26, that is, the mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints. Okay, And then verses 28 and 29, just again to see what is the result then, what is, how is this played out, what is the administration of this, we proclaim him. We proclaim Him. We preach Christ, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom what is the goal so that we may present every man complete, mature in Christ. That's the goal. That's ministry. That's authentic ministry right there. And how does He carry it out? Verse 29, For this purpose also I labor, striving according to His power which mightily works within me. So all this to say, since we're, we're busy planting a new church and trying, we want to make sure we start from the very beginning. Everything we do has to be Christ-centered, gospel-saturated. From, from nursery to little old men like me, and any ministry we want to call a ministry of the church has to be governed by this. It has to be about this, or else it's not, it's not a part of the authentic ministry. We're wasting our time. We have been called to do gospel ministry in every ministry we do. In other words, we exist to promote the glory of Jesus Christ. Right? The fame of Jesus Christ for the glory of God and the joy of all people. Every ministry we do. In other words, everything we do has to be gospel-centered, grace-saturated. Yeah? That's what, that, this is, so this is what we're about. We want to make sure we're doing that which God is about, you see. So then, back to uh, Ephesians. He says there in verse 9, to bring the light, to so, so shine the light, make known, if you will, the administration of the mystery which for ages, previous ages, has been hidden, cloaked in God, who created all things. This is fascinating. The mystery, think of this now, the mystery has been designed, planned, before it came to be, because it's been hidden for ages in God. In verses 4 of chapter 1, 
election chosen before the foundation of the world. Before time began, this God had this plan of which verse 9 is saying was hidden in God. And notice where he goes there in verse 9. He says about God who created all things. Now, it's interesting that he references creator. Why does he do that? He doesn't need to do this to make sense. But in verse 9, God who created all things, the mystery of the ages hidden in God who created. What is this emphasizing? I think is the one who created, created according to this plan, knowing what he was about to do in this New Testament era through Paul. That was already in his mind when he created. Okay? So he created with this purpose in mind. He created with this purpose in mind. Okay? Now look at verse 10. So we had how he came to be this minister, what this entails, preaching Christ and to bring to light how this, the missionary focus of God. This is God's plan since creation. Verse 10 is, a hint, is it so that you have a purpose here. So here's the why. Why did God call Paul to do this? Why is authentic Christian ministries doing what they're doing? Verse 10, The manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This is a fascinating thing. Wow. The gospel of grace, the gospel of Gentile equality with Jesus Christ, with Jews who are in Christ, that, that inclusion of the Gentiles, the, the gospel of grace for the whole world is so that angels would come to see and know more of God than they did beforehand. That's fascinating, isn't it? God's concern for angels. I think it's fascinating. In 1 Corinthians 11 the, 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 the subject matter, the details don't want to get confused, but the subject matter of 1 Corinthians 11 is wives, women's submission to men, right? Wives' submission to their husbands. Why were they to be in that role? It's because of the angels, it says in 1 Corinthians 11, right? So somehow when things are out of whack, angels are like, wait a minute, this ain't right. <laughs> it's like, God, what are you doing? Are you not going to strike them dead? <laughs> Right? How long, Lord, are you going to wait here? Right? It's fascinating. So then, as we see in verse 10, the grace of God in the lives of sinners is so that angels would see and know more about God, the Creator. The manifold wisdom of God is phrased there in verse 10. Manifold, many-sided, multicolored. It speaks of the infinite diversity and sparkling beauty of His wisdom. Like a rainbow, like a prism of light shining on the wall. It is, it is many-splendored, His wisdom is. In every phase of redemption and creation, the brilliance of God's wisdom reveals itself. The infinite brilliance of God's mind is revealed in and through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's amazing. Do you remember Romans 11 when he says this after he speaks about the Jews and the Gentiles and how God sets the Jews aside to work on Gentiles and once that's the time of the Gentiles then he works on the Jews. At the end of that section in Romans he says this in verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. Right? The manifold wisdom of God being revealed to angelic beings. 
Because that's who the, in verse 10 of Ephesians 3, the rulers and the, the authorities in the heavenly places. There's debate on whether this is just demons and evil or just good. I think it just speaks of generally these are rulers and authorities in the heavenlies. There's no emphasis here on one side or another. So these are angelic beings. Okay? These are angels. Whether they're evil and demons, okay. If they're holy, there's, there's text to support that as well. Let's just say angels. Okay? Rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Look down and see the manifold wisdom of God. They see the brilliance of His wisdom. Now think of this. God has revealed this truth in the gospel to the apostles and the prophets. That's chapter 3, verse 5. He revealed it to the saints in Colossians 1, 26. So then, they could then reveal it to the angels. And notice how the knowledge, in verse 10, how is this knowledge of God's wisdom revealed or made known to the heavenly powers? It's through the church, the body of Christ. Not individuals, but corporately as a whole, because that's where Jew and Gentile come together. And the church makes known to the angels the multifaceted, variegated color diversity of God's wisdom. Wow. In 1 Peter 1, verse 12, the, the holy angels are seen with, to have a great curiosity about redemption. And they strain to look into these things of God's mercy on sinners. They're just, they're just because they've never sinned. And they're not, they're not humans, but they certainly know God. And they are righteous beings. They, they're sinless anyway, right? And they look in on redemption. And First Peter gives this idea that they're, it's so great. It's so foreign to them. And they have this intrigue like little kids, you know, looking in there. And it's like, we're amazed by this. That God saves sinners who are rebels, who deserve righteous wrath. Okay? His glorious grace is what overwhelms the, the angels. They're, they're intrigued. One commentator said this. I thought this was worth noting. According to verse 10, the church thus becomes the university for angels and each saint a professor. Only in the church can the angels come to an adequate comprehension of the grace of God, therefore the wisdom of God. Unquote. Think with me. This is a cool... Encourages me to think about this that the angels they were spectators watching God create the heavens and the earth, according to Job. Right? They applauded and sang praises as they watched God create, right? Which tells me they're created first and then they watch God create everything the heavens and the earth. According to scripture, they were spectators when the creator entered creation at Bethlehem. Did they not go to and announce this? to the shepherds and to others, right? So they're spectators at that great event. They were there watching him suffer in great agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. And certainly they looked on in horror as the nails pierced his holy hands and feet. And they obeyed the Father's command to stand down as the Son died in the sinner's place. Don't you know they wanted to come to his rescue? Because they know who he is, man. But they watched as the sun hung there and died. 
in the sinner's place as our substitute on the cross. And don't you know, they certainly rejoice. Because if they rejoice over one sinner repenting, don't you know they rejoice when the Father said, okay, now go down and announce his resurrection. Right? Don't you know they were happy to do that? And so they come and announce his resurrection. They dwell, these angels, in God's brilliant presence. They know God's majesty. They, they, they see his glory. They're in his presence. But they must observe God's church, Jews and Gentiles in harmony, loving God side by side in unity, loving each other, loving Christ, loving God as one body. They must gaze on the church to see something of God they cannot see otherwise. And that's the manifold wisdom of God. That's glorious. So God creates the church to show the angels more of himself. That puts us in the proper place, doesn't it? It's not about us. <laughs> I mean, we get all the blessings, all these blessings, you know, but it's about God and his glory. How important then is it for the church to live out the unity that we were saved in? To be, dis, to be dysfunctional, sinfully div- disunified, affects the angels. The church needs to repent of that which is truly sinful disunity. Right? Paul continues, please, in verse 11. He says that this verse 10 that we just looked at there, making this known to the angels, is in accordance or in harmony with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. He planned this out before time. In the glorious mind of God, the Creator, he created with a purpose, and this purpose was in his mind. And he carried it out in verse 11 perfectly in Christ Jesus our Lord, which is to say... The redemption through the cross is not plan B. It's not some quick response of God to an initial plan that's gone bad. Oh, talk on it, right? No, it's the sacrifice of Christ is the original plan by which God would carry out this purpose of, of the angels looking on the church and seeing the manifold wisdom of God. And through the death of His Son, on our behalf, to make reconciliation and the resurrection, all of that, was, was in the Creator's mind before He created. First Peter 1 talks about redemption. And it says about the Lamb who's our Redeemer, that He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Which is to say, He was chosen to be the Redeemer before creation. Jesus Christ was chosen for what He accomplished before the foundation of the world. Right? Go to Acts 2 real quick, please. Same truth, but I just want you to see this. In Acts 2, Peter's first sermon. What a difference the Spirit makes, huh? Um, (laughs) in, In verse 22, for instance, in 23, Men of Israel, says Peter, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested or pointed to to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him 
in your midst, just as you yourselves know. Nobody's ignorant of this. Verse 23, this man delivered over like a criminal by, notice, the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Right? In other words, being delivered over, handed over to the Gentiles to be crucified was God's predetermined plan before the foundation of the world. And that was to accomplish, carry out His eternal purpose. And as we see in Ephesians 3, that eternal purpose was that the angels would gaze upon the church and be stunned by the wisdom of God. It's for His glory. It's for His worship. The angels are praising Him because of what He accomplishes in our midst. How cool is that? We're not just our own entity, right? We are an independent church, and we're strongly independent. <laughs> right? A little too much Scottish blood running through our veins. But <laughs> we're only independent from that, which we should be, I hope. <laughs> but we are in unity, man, and we are under the, 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 the glorious purpose of God so that He looks upon us. I mean, we have Hondurans, Kazakhstan, Ukraine... Okies, <laughs> right? All together. Actually like each other. I actually like you, right? I love you, but I actually like you. I love being here, right? How do you explain that? We have nothing in common. I'm an I'm a ignorant cowboy that loved making a living on a horse far away from folks as I could get. Do you see... And the angels look on this and they're stunned and they see the wisdom of God that they, that they would never otherwise see because this can't be reduplicated. It can't be faked. You can't fake the unity of the Spirit in the Gospel. It'll show up, right? Your, 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 your duplicity will show up. If you're playing it. But if it's true and genuine and the true unity and openness, I mean, the angels are like, I can get, I don't think I'm wrong here, but I like, my, someone once said, use your sanctified imagination. Mm-hmm. Right? Can you, can you just see an angel kind of like looking here and then looking up at God and saying, awesome, glorious, I praise you. <laughs> Only you can do this. <laughs> right? Only you can do this. Oh my goodness. I love it. Go back to Ephesians, please. And we'll finish this up. So the, the, the why that Paul has been called to go and preach and, and to do mission work to the far ends of the world is that, that God's eternal purpose would be brought forth, which is that His wisdom might be made known to the angelic authorities. And notice in verse 12, he will go on to say, fascinating, furthering the purpose of God. Okay? Not only was it for angels to be stunned by God's glory, but look at verse 12. In whom, whom is Christ Jesus our Lord, in Him we have boldness and confident access through Him, through faith in Him. It almost seems like, what's that doing there? Right? I mean, you could pull that out of there and it would make sense, what have you. But he goes from the angels being stunned by God's glory, which is according to the purpose of God, which then comes into 12 to further show that this this glorious wisdom of God and purpose of God includes our access to God. 
that they have to a degree. The, the, the holy angels, they're in his presence. They're stunned by his glory to some degree, right? They have access to him. But here, look at verse 12 again. It says, In whom, in Christ Jesus, we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Very cool. I love this. Talk about grace that stuns the angels and the wisdom of God here. Is not, not only is it Jews and Gentiles together coming to Christ, but Jews and Gentiles who were formerly sinners and rebels and ungodly and unrighteous. They have access to the Holy Creator. You don't think that stuns the angels? Right? Holy access to the glorious, awesome Creator who the angels constantly gaze upon. I think Gabriel said of himself, I come from the presence of Yahweh. Man, that gets my attention. Wow. Yes, sir. I come from the presence of Yahweh. Right? And here it says, I, will have, a- I have access <laughs> to the one in whose presence you come from. Right? Now look at this. We know that through Christ, we will be in his presence. To, to, to die is Christ, and to, or Christ is life, right? To live is Christ, to die is gain. Separated from the Spirit and the body, the Spirit goes to be with Christ, and that, so we're in his presence. That's future even, right? And, and, and glorification is to be in a resurrected, resurrected body in the, the presence of God. That's part of creation, uh, God's redemption, part of glorification. But notice the tense here in verse 12. We have. That's present tense. I, yes, I expect to be in glory and I expect to be in the presence of God. I expect to be there because He's promised it. But this is talking about right now. This is a present tense. I have a present possession. We have, it says, boldness. I love this word. It literally means freedom of speech. Isn't that a cool? Your niña there, she has freedom of speech in your presence. For the most part, as long as it's righteous. Right? But you know what I'm saying? What, the, the, the word speaks of an unhinderedness to the speech. Why is, there, why is it unhindered? Because there's no barrier. There's no restriction. There's no fear. You see, it's, it's the same word for boldness here as used in Hebrews 4. Since Christ is our high priest, sympathetic, we come boldly, same word, to the throne of grace. Yeah? He says here, we have this freedom of speech. We have this no hindrance to our coming to God. We possess this boldness. How can we have such boldness while yet sinful? It's because of the redemption and the reconciliation in Christ. And we believe His Word because it says this is by faith. By faith in Christ, we have this boldness. Faith in Christ is how we're saved. Faith in Christ, you will be in glory. But faith in Christ right now is how I enter through that door into the very presence of God. I possess that boldness. Do you have a hindrance? Do you have a reluctance? The opposite of this is to shrink back. To shrink back in fear and doubt. Why would someone shrink back in fear and doubt? They're not fully believing in the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. You see, the gospel frees me up. I have free speech before God. You know what that means? 
I can speak to him about anything. I have this boldness. Lord, I don't like how you did this thing. And I'm going to tell you about it. Not in arrogance. I'm just going to tell you. I think you got this one wrong. Right? I would have done it differently. I would have changed some things. And I don't mind telling you. But you know that I love you. And you know that I trust you. That's what Peter said. You know that I love you. You know all things. You know that I love you. I know that God knows that I love him. And I have free speech. Isn't that glorious? This is part of the stunning of angels. When the angels see the boldness you have, it's like, wow. <laughs> right? I just, I just love that. It goes on, though. Look at 12. For, he goes on to say, we have possessed boldness, freeness of speech. And then he goes on in the NAS and says, confident access. Or literally, a, an access in confidence. The, the idea here of confidence is assurance of full acceptance. It's in a it's in a perfect state. It's it's in a it's a perfect verb, it, which speaks of a fixed condition. I have a settled and fixed confidence because of the gospel of Christ, and it's not just for me; it's for the angels to go. You're amazing. <laughs> You're amazing, right? Now, isn't that so glorious? It's by faith, as verse 12 says, faith in Him. And then this will then take us, I want to finish at least, we will finish at 13, but I want to take you to Revelation 5, please. See this in Revelation 5. This this presence that we have, that God has paved the way, is an aspect of His eternal purpose that, that both Jews and Gentiles from every tribe and every tongue and every people and every nation would have full access to Him through Jesus Christ to, to worship Him, to extol Him, to praise Him, to glorify Him, to speak to Him, to enjoy Him. And look at Revelation 5, please. I know you... This, one of my favorite texts. We can start in verse 9. Look at what it says. And they sang a new song. This is a picture of heaven. But please enter into this with your sanctified imagination. They sang a new song. God liked singing. Saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood. Notice, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. That's what the angels are stunned about in that unification. Go on, skip over to verse 11, please, just for time. Look at what it says. Then I looked and I heard the voice, singular, of many angels, plural. Wow. Talk about a triumphant unison. Right? around the throne and living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. It can't be numbered. Verse 12, saying with a loud voice, singular, triumphantly, in unison, saying, verse 12, worthy is the Lamb. Can you imagine what that sounded like? That was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. The angels are included in this. 
Verse 13, In every created thing which is in the heaven and on earth and under the earth and under the sea and all things in them I heard saying, singular again in verse 13, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. In verse 14, hallelujah, the four living creatures kept saying, kept on saying, Amen, Amen, Amen. A bunch of Baptists and the elders fell down and worshipped. Glory to God. Amen. Amen. That's church in heaven that the church, the angels look down on the church on the earth and they see a resemblance of that here in the unification, the unity, the spiritual unity, in the practical unity of Jews and Gentiles worshiping Messiah. And they're stunned by that. And we have this access to God. And then we'll finish, please, and go back to Ephesians and just two minutes here in Ephesians 3.13. Since that is what he's been called to, and since this is what blesses the Gentiles, and he comes to verse 13, Therefore, in light of all that I said to you, therefore, I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, because they're for your glory. Authentic ministry is seen in being a prisoner of Christ, Secondly, it's being a ministry is a stewardship. And then third, in verse 7 and following, it is a service unto Christ. Authentic ministry is taken up with the centrality of Jesus Christ. It is seen in that it is centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is saturated with grace. Grace upon grace upon grace. That is an authentic Christian ministry. And it's all focused on the, 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 the oneness in the body and the praising of God. And it's for the angels, among other things, it's for angels to praise God. And so I can imagine, can you use your imagination, the angels sitting around little groups like this that are focused on the sun and, and they are pleased. And they look. Up, I'm sure they look up to God and say, this is amazing. You're amazing, God. So, let us be, wor- let us be in, thir- in verse 13. If tribulations come our way for the sake of this gospel, do not worry. Do not lose heart. Rejoice in God. It is worth everything. It is worth everything. And it's, it's also a sign of authenticity that you do not cave and you do not abandon post. Stay the course. Amen? Amen. Can we, in good... I hope you're not offended by this, but it's part of a... In good Slavic fashion, can we rise as we pray? (laughs) And then you can come forward and do songs, right? Okay, let's pray, beloved. Thank you, Father, for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for your word that shows us things I can't even begin to get my hand around. But I thank you how you stir our hearts. Lord, help us to be faithful. Help us to be willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the unbelievers. Help us to see this as a duty to be carried out in in such a glorious privilege. And help us to see ourselves as humble slaves, servants of yours, for the sake of your glory and the good of those around us. And that the angels would rejoice as they see your manifold wisdom on display. We give you the glory and the praise for you are worth it all. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.